we are looking at Isaac this week, and we're going to be moving into the story of Jacob as we move on forward here. But we see as we jump back in that Isaac has married Rebecca. We know that they've been married for 20 years, and she has been barren. So what do we know from the story of Sarah and now from Rebecca? God is sovereign over the womb. God opens and closes the womb. And so we see as we move into Genesis 25, 19 and following that Isaac and Rebekah are both going to seek the Lord. In fact, in verse 21, it says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God has spoken. He spoke to her in response to her prayer, and he told her that the older would serve the younger. We need to remember that because there's going to be a little struggle where that is concerned. Now, the twins actually represent all of mankind. Esau represents those who are fleshly minded. Jacob represents those who are spiritually minded. She recognized that battle waging within her. And that's actually a physical picture of the spiritual battle that rages within all of us. In fact, in Romans 7 and 8, Paul explains it. He says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. How many of you have been there, done that? I agree with the Lord. I agree with his word in my head. And then I see myself do something in the flesh. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Where did that come from? Well, it's coming out of my heart. And when I do things that don't line up with who I profess to be and what God's word says, I have to go back to my heart and my time with the Lord and say, Lord, show me. Show me what the root is. Show me what's in my heart that's preventing me from living according to what I say I believe and according to the truth of your word. It's waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man or woman that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. We move into chapter 8, and we hear these tremendously powerful words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We are no longer under the law. We have been set free, but we have to learn how to appropriate and walk in that freedom. So we see Esau represents the flesh. Jacob represents the one who's spiritually minded, even though he doesn't really look like it at the beginning. He reverts back to living carnally too, but he was focused on the covenant blessing. That was what he wanted. Jacob was living for the covenant and Esau was living for the moment. In exploring Genesis, John Phillips said, sooner or later, the inner struggle we experience will manifest itself openly in our lives. We will either adopt the principles exemplified in Esau or the principles exemplified in Jacob. 
We know this all too well. We desire to follow the Lord. And it's only as we die to our flesh that we're able to live the resurrected life, that Jesus Christ, through his spirit, lives in us and through us. And he's able to show us these strongholds or these beachheads of the enemy in our life that we're able to take to the cross, ask him to to cleanse us from so that we can be set free from them and live in the freedom that we have because we belong to Christ. All of us are plagued just like Esau, with a desire for instant gratification. In fact, our study this week asked us to list some of the examples that we struggle with. Here's just a few from my workbook. (laughs) Materialism. Our culture is constantly telling us what we need, what we need to be happy, what the new car, the new house, the clothes, the food. Food is one. Clothes can be one. Lust, pornography, sexual immorality, jealousy, comparison and competition, and even social media likes. All of it feeds into that instant gratification that all of us struggle with in our flesh. Romans 8, 6 goes on to tell us, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So as we move into chapter 26, we see that God is going to meet with Isaac and Isaac is going to be blessed by God. Now, this is the only chapter dedicated only to Isaac. There are multiple chapters on Abraham and multiple on Jacob and many on Joseph. But Isaac gets one. He's not as strong a personality, but he is faithful until the end. And we're going to see he kind of slacks up. And any time we stop moving toward the Lord, you never coast. You're either going forward or backward in your walk with the Lord. And we see him sliding backward and reverting back to the ways of the flesh. But as we pick up in chapter 26, let's look at verses 2 through 6 at the blessing that he receives. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, why was he tempted to go to Egypt? Just like his father before him, there was a famine in the land. And so he must have thought about it or the Lord would not have addressed that. Don't go down to Egypt. Do not go, stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statues, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. So he's in Gerar. They're not going down into Egypt but he's going to fall into the same sin pattern of his father. Because obviously, Rebecca, these men had evidently very beautiful wives. Rebecca also was beautiful. And so he told everyone, if they asked, that she was his sister. But we know that Abimelech actually sees, or someone does, yeah, Abimelech, king of the Philistines in verse 8, looks out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebecca, and said, that's a little too friendly for your sister. Obviously, she's not your sister. (laughs) And then what does he do? He rebukes him just like Abraham had been rebuked. Now, we don't know if this is the same Abimelech because that's just a name that was given to the king of that area. More than likely it wasn't when you think about the age that he would have been. But hey, who knows? They lived a long time back then. Um, And then we're going to see that Abimelech says, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now this was a period of famine, and he's sowing, and a hundredfold in the best of conditions is a huge harvest. So it was evident to Abimelech and to all the Philistines that God's hand was upon Isaac. And this is going to be important because that's part of what protects Isaac. Now in 
24, verse 24 down, we're going to see that there's some quarreling over the wells, but God's going to appear to Isaac again and bless him once again. Look at verse 24. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear. So there had been squabbling over the wells and he's saying, you don't have to fear. I am here with you. I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So God has blessed him. He's given him a well. He's here in Beersheba. God's providing for him. And because the favor of God is on him, Abimelech thinks, you know what? I might better go make a covenant with him. (laughs) Let's just make sure he's blessed, he's multiplying, that he doesn't turn on us. So Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm just if we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Listen to this. You are now the blessed of the Lord. God's favor so rested upon Isaac that even this pagan king recognized you are the blessed of the Lord. I want to make a covenant with you that you don't turn on me because it's obvious God is with you. And so I want to be on your side. That's exactly what he was doing. At the end of 26, we see that Esau was 40 years old and he married two pagan women. And 35 said they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Now we're going to move into the chapter, (laughs) the scheme, the deception. It's like the climax of their story, right? We get to this part and Isaac has a favorite and Rebecca has a favorite. And because Isaac has a favorite, he's wanting to bless his favorite son, even though Jacob has already purchased the birthright. He's wanting to give him that covenant blessing, even though God said, The older will serve the younger. What has happened in his latter years? Well, he's 137 years old as we move into this chapter, and he's thinking he's about to die. His eyesight has obviously failed, and he knows that his brother, stepbrother Ishmael, died at 137. So maybe that's why he was thinking, possibly bedridden at this time, it appears to be, and yet he's going to live quite a bit longer, as we know. So he calls in Esau and tells him, go get some of that venison. You know, the kind I like. (laughs) What did we see in our workbook this time? How many times did he talk about food and the venison? And yeah, he he was focused on his flesh. He was hungry. He He wanted him to satisfy the lust of his flesh. And he wanted to bless Esau, his favorite. You know, each character in this story, in this narrative, in this chapter, all four of them were living in the flesh. All four of them make unwise decisions. First, Isaac calls Esau in to bless him, despite the Lord telling them from the beginning the older would serve the younger. Because Isaac had chosen Esau as his favorite, he wanted to grant him that covenantal blessing. Isaac was deceived by Jacob because he depended upon his flesh. What did he do? Outwardly. He smelled like him. He didn't sound like him, but he smelled like him. The food tasted like venison, and he believed as he touched him with the goat skin. I can't imagine how goat, I mean, Esau must have really been hairy, guys. <laughs> That's some pretty serious hair we're talking about on goats here. So he went with his feelings, even though he recognized the voice wasn't quite right. Now, what about Esau? He wanted the blessing of the firstborn because he wanted the blessing that went with it, not necessarily the covenant. 
it really meant nothing to him. He had married two Canaanite women. He would go on to marry a third woman, a daughter of Ishmael, simply to compete with Jacob because Jacob had been sent to get a descendant of Abraham. Esau was an impulsive and lust-driven man. But what about Rebecca? What is she doing when her husband calls Esau in? Well, she's obviously suspicious and she's eavesdropping in the tent, right? She's wanting to know what's going on, what any respectable woman would do, right? <laughs> we want to be in control. We want to know what's going on. We don't want anything to happen without us being aware, right? So she's listening and she hears what's happened. And she, I, you know, I think she had the scheme ready. I think she knew that Esau was his favorite. And at some point he would want to pass that blessing on to him. And she was prepared. So she's eavesdropping. She moves quickly to conceive her own plan to outwit her husband. And you have to ask ourselves, what if she had pulled back and said, but God said, that the older would serve the younger. What if she had waited? Would Esau have been unsuccessful? Would he have been gone a really long time? Would God have spoken to Isaac and rebuked him or reprimanded him for wanting to pass the blessing to the son that God had not chosen? Well, we'll never know because Rebecca took things into her own hands and she came up with her own solution. What about Jacob, the heel grabber who lies to his father you know, as I was thinking about that and looking at his lies as we looked at them this week, I thought about a time, just a memory came back from junior high school. Have you ever impersonated somebody or swapped identities with someone? Well, if you're a twin, you probably have. I don't have a twin, but I had a really good friend in junior high, and we had a sub one day. So we decided, let's switch places and let's switch names. I'll be you, you be me. How fun will this be? And so it worked really great for a day. And then we came back the next day, and she was there. And the next, the third day, she was still there. And she announced to the class that our teacher was going to be out for a while, and she was going to be with us for six weeks. <laughs> so we had to sheepishly go up and confess what we had done and tell her that we were playing a prank and we had switched seats. And I really don't remember, must not have been a terrible consequence because I don't remember it. But I remember the shame of having to tell her that we had switched identities. But when you think about what he did, what did he do? He walked and he says, I'm Esau. He's addressing his father and blatantly lying right at the beginning. I'm your firstborn. I have done as you told me. And then Isaac's going to ask him, well, how did you get back so quickly? He said, because the Lord God, blames it on God, caused it to happen. So eat of my game, which was not game. It wasn't venison. It was goat that Rebecca had prepared. He didn't even make it. And he says, are you really Esau? And he said, what? I am. Ooh. <laughs> and yet we know Jacob received the blessing. Even though Esau thought he was, or Isaac thought he was blessing Esau. Let's pick up at the blessing in verse 27 of chapter 27. So he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, because he had on Esau's clothes, he blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field, which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who cursed you and blessed be those who blessed you. Now it came about. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. So they literally almost passed each other. He had also made savory food, and he brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. Isaac, his father, said to him, Who are you? And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, 
Who was he then that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate up all of it before you came and blessed him? And then he adds, yes, and he shall be blessed. When Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. He does go on to bless him, but as we compare the blessings, it's not what Jacob received. What happened to Isaac right there when he trembled violently? I really believe it was an awareness, an awakening of sorts spiritually that he recognized he had been wanting to thwart the very plan of God and God did not allow him to. And I believe that's why he said, yes, and he shall be blessed. It has been pronounced and it was God's will and he will be blessed. Now, we know Esau was so angry, and his anger turned into bitterness, which turned into a desire to murder his brother. Once again, Rebecca gets wind of what's taking place, and what does she do? She says, I don't want Jacob to marry one of these heathen women. I wouldn't be able to live if that happened. Send him back to my family and let him find a wife there. And as we move into the next chapter 28, it's almost as though Isaac had the idea. He calls him in. He's going to bless him once again. In verse 3 and 4, he says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you, that you may possess the land of your sojournings, which God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob away. Now think about Rebecca, the consequence of her scheming. Her son got blessed, but then he had to be sent away because of Esau's desire for revenge. And she told him, I'll call for you in a few days. I'll call for you to come back when he's kind of cooled off. But what do we know? She never calls for him. And when he comes back 20 years later, she's dead. And we don't know when she died. Her scheming led to her never seeing her favorite son again. So what do we learn from their family dysfunction? First of all, we learn that God is sovereign. And his plan will ultimately be fulfilled. But we also learn there are consequences to our actions and to our belief or unbelief. And you have some points there. A is we are all dysfunctional <laughs> because we all have a sin nature. And you know what's interesting is I think my dysfunction is not as dysfunctional as your dysfunction because my dysfunction is my normal. Do you get that? The way I was raised is my normal because that's all I ever know. And so the problem is we're all dysfunctional, but for the most part, we're unaware of it because it's normal to us. It's how we were raised. Now, as we walk with the Lord and we begin to ask him to manifest his spirit in our lives, we begin to see where we're not manifesting the fruit of the spirit and where the flesh is taking over. The Lord allows us to see this. And I've often compared it to like peeling an onion. You know, the little thin little layers that come off an onion. I feel like that's what the Lord does to us. He pulls the outward things that are pretty obvious off first and says, deal with this, confess this, deal with this. And then he gets really down deep to like motives and attitudes and unforgiveness and those things that we kind of want to stuff. You know, quite often I tell you, feelings are not truth. This is truth. And if we will make decisions based on the truth of God's word, our feelings will eventually line up. But we don't stuff feelings, okay? God has given us feelings. And sometimes if we have a feeling, we need to pause long enough and dig a little bit, get in the word, ask God to show us through his Holy Spirit what's triggering this fleshly response. 
what's behind my insecurity? What's behind this jealousy? Why am I comparing myself to this person? Why can I not be full of joy for this person's success? Why did I get angry about this? Why am I harboring unforgiveness? And the Holy Spirit will show you. (laughs) He will show you if you ask him. What we've got to do is slow down long enough to ask. Because we're so busy, we sometimes don't want to slow down because we're a little bit afraid of what we're going to see. We don't want to pay attention to the voices in our head and to the nagging suspicion that something's not quite right or that that sin that we just can't seem to conquer just keeps rearing its ugly head. So we have to take it to the Lord, take it to his word. B is there are sin patterns within families. Now we see this in their lives. Look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just think about those three generations. There's lying, scheming, broken relationships with siblings, favoritism, lack of intimacy in marriage, jealousy, competition to the point of wanting to murder the favorite son, Esau to Jacob, and then Joseph's brothers wanting to kill him. And yet we're going to see in Joseph one who broke out of the dysfunction and chose to believe God. In fact, he's able to tell his brothers after the death of their father, what you intended for evil, God used for good to preserve life. He got the big picture. Our problem is we have tunnel vision. When we're trapped in the flesh, we can only see with the eyes of the flesh. When we die to the flesh and we're living in the spirit, God opens our eyes and he allows us to have a kingdom vantage point. So he allows us to see the bigger picture. Now, we're obviously never going to see all that he sees or know all that he knows, but he reveals enough to us to be able to walk in freedom in the power of his spirit at this point in our lives. I was listening to a speaker recently, and she was talking about the omniscience of God. Now, when you think about the omniscience, which means he's all-knowing, he literally knows everything, that this God that we worship spoke the entire universe into existence. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't even begin to comprehend that kind of omniscience. Like it would, you know, if, the, if this whole room was the omniscience of God, my knowing is a pinpoint. <laughs> and because my knowing is a pinpoint, can I not trust this omniscient God that I know is good Can I not be obedient to him because I know he desires my well-being? Because he sent his only son to take my place and pay my sin debt? He willingly laid down his life for me so that I could be in right relation. Can I not trust this God? Yes. Then why do we elevate our reasoning above the word of God? Why do we think we have to help him out instead of just cooperating with what he has said? It's because there's still a battle going on between our flesh and and our spirit. And every single day, we've got to deny our flesh, take up our cross daily, and follow Jesus Christ. It's a death to the flesh on a daily basis. Now, yes, it gets easier. And you know those great saints of God that have walked with Jesus for a long time, the ones that are really intimate with the Lord, the ones that when you've got a prayer crisis, a prayer need, you know right who to go to. Those are the ones who have walked with Jesus long enough to know He is faithful, and I don't want to do anything apart from him. I can do nothing apart from him. It's like Abraham at the end of his life and his willingness to lay Isaac down. He trusted God so fully, he didn't even question. He just did exactly what God commanded him to do. And that is where I desire to be because that's where real freedom is experienced. It's in completely and wholly trusting the Lord. 
Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, said after 20 years of being a Christian, he and his wife just figured out that underneath the surface, their marriage bore a striking resemblance to that of their parents. Gender roles, the handling of anger and conflict, shame, how we define success, our view of family, children, recreation, pleasure, sexuality, grieving, our relationship with friends, had all been shaped by our family of origin and our cultures. Our ways of relating mirrored much more of our family of origin than the way God intended for his new family in Christ. Okay, now think about that just a minute. Think about the sin patterns that you see in your own life, that you see in your parents and possibly your grandparents. Think about the patterns of sin that have been passed down. It can be any of those things that we just mentioned. Maybe it's divorce, separation, jealousy, competition, favoritism. What are the things that you see in your family line that plague you? Those are the things you need to declare war on so that you can conquer the flesh and live in the spirit, so that you can actually obey God and do away with the war that's going on within you. C is we have the power of the Holy Spirit to break generational strongholds. And I would encourage you to get Jenny Allen's book, Get Out of Your Head. I recommended it last year. She challenges us to think about what we're thinking about. And she actually says that emotions are actually triggered by a thought. So if I'm believing a lie, if I'm thinking something that is untrue, maybe because that's how I was trained in my home of origin, or it's a lie that it was implanted by the enemy somewhere and I allowed it to come in and take root, and now it becomes a part of my identity, a part of how I think, and the Holy Spirit shows it to me. I have the power through the Spirit, the blood of Christ in the name of Jesus, to sever its hold on my life and to refuse it and to replace the lie with the truth of God's word. And that's what we've talked about before, about taking all the what ifs of the enemy and replying with what is. It is written, just like Jesus did when the enemy tempted him. But that's how we will deal with it. Steve preached a message. You've got three resources listed on your handout today. One of them is Sylvia Gunter's book, For the Family. And these are scripture prayers that you can pray for your family. And there's one in here on praying for your wife, praying for your husband. In fact, I have one at home and it stays like this in my three ring binder, my prayer notebook, because I, I have a little tab and I don't pray the whole thing for my husband every day, but I pray portions of it each day. So I just move the little tab as I, as I pray pray a section so I know the next day where to pick back up. But it's also got prayers in here on breaking bondage for a loved one. And I have precious friends who have adult children that are prodigals. They're running from God. And so at least once a week, I go to that and I call out all their names to the Lord. And I pray those scriptures over them that God will break the bondage in their life and set them free. I'm agreeing with their parents that God is going to capture their hearts, that their eyes are going to be open, that they're not going to be deceived by the enemy. They're no longer going to be in darkness. And I intercede on their behalf because we have the power of the Holy Spirit to break strongholds. And Steve recommended Dr. Rogers' little booklet, How to Break Satan's Strongholds in Your Life. And then he preached on that this past Sunday, and those sermons are posted online under Bellevue.org. So all three of those resources are simple resources. It's not a big book for you to read. They're simple resources that are excellent to use that I would encourage you to get. And make silence and solitude a part of your quiet time. That's hard for us because we're so accustomed to noise and busyness in our world. It seems like most people constantly either have a radio on or a television on or something all the time. There's always noise. I would encourage you to turn it off 
And especially during your quiet time, spend some time in worship, but then spend some time sitting and listening. Especially when you're seeking the Lord about a specific prayer request or a prayer need. Ask him how he wants you to pray about it. Ask him to give you a word from his word that you can stand on and you can pray back to him. I was listening to a message by Carol Ward this weekend. It was on her email uh, that came out from her ministry, Favor International. And Carol is one of the people who will be speaking at the She Loves Out Loud Global Conference on Saturday. And if you haven't signed up, do not miss it. It's going to be so good. I listened to her message and wept. Her faith in God shakes me to my core. It really does. The answers to prayer they're seeing are unbelievable. And I sent it out to a bunch of people. It's just like, you've got to listen to this. You've got to listen to this. But she talks about prayer being circular. Because what happens? Who do we know is praying for us in heaven? Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us when we're praying and we don't even know how to pray. When our hearts are broken, we're heavily burdened and we can't even sometimes articulate what we want to say. The Holy Spirit takes over for us with groanings too deep for words and says, this is what Donna is trying to say, Lord. This is what's coming out of her heart. And he intercedes according to the will of God because what are we to pray according to the Lord's prayer? Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. So we're lining up with Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We're asking the Lord for his kingdom to come, for his perfect will to come down through us and lining up with his word. We take his word and we pray it back up to him. Do you see that? It's the circle of prayer. And that's how God's will gets from heaven to earth. It's through the lives of faithful prayer warriors who will stand in the gap on behalf of those that the enemy's holding captive who will stand on the gap and ask the Lord to show them how to pray for their city, for their community, for the nation and the nations. Carol's ministry is in Uganda and South Sudan, and they have pastors that have gone all over the place. Their ministry now, the pastors are trusting God for 10 more nations in Africa. That's what they're asking for. Her pastors are willing to go to the Middle East because they're Muslim and they know how they understand how they think. They're willing to go to the Middle East as missionaries knowing they may die. And you know what they said? My eternity is secure, but theirs isn't. How can I not go? How can I not go? When you're living like that, when you've already died, what are they going to do to you? And oh my goodness, the rewards that they're going to have simply because they believe. Carol's been there for over 20 years in a war-torn area of the world that no mission organization would sponsor her because they said, we can't be responsible. You're going to come back in a body bag. 20 years later in hundreds of churches and salvation, they're seeing, they saw 20,000 people come to Christ in the last three months. Yeah. Incredible. (laughs) So don't tell me with that kind of prayer and desperation that we can't see the same thing happen right here. They're desperate because Jesus is all they have. What we don't realize is he's all we have too. (laughs) We have the comforts of materialism and greed all around us that make us complacent and apathetic. That's scary, scary to me. D is our families can and should be outposts of heaven, filled with the aroma of Christ and the fruit of his spirit, the values of heaven and the love of God and others. And I want to encourage you to ask the Lord to make your home wherever you live, your home, your apartment, whatever it is you live in, whoever you live with, claim your home for Christ. Read scripture over it. 
Pray through it. Ask the Holy Spirit to loose the fruit of his spirit into the atmosphere of your home. I've done that for years in my home. After I pray, sometimes I'll just walk through my home and say, Lord, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to loose the fruit of your spirit in my life in the very atmosphere of our home. Father, in the name of Jesus, I loose love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control into my home. And I ask that anyone who comes in is going to encounter Christ. They're going to encounter the love, the joy, the peace that only comes from his spirit. Spirit of the living God, reign in our home. We need to do that. I'm so grateful that our children are seeking to raise their children to know and love the Lord. It is such an incredible grace gift to watch them parent. And as you know, parenting is not easy, especially today. They have so much more to deal with even than we did. But I was at Grant and Melissa's one night last year, and I'd gone up for Olivia's cheer competition that was going to be the next day on a Saturday, and I was spending the night with them. And Melissa had cooked a meal, and we had sat down at the table, and we'd all had dinner together. And then one of the kids wanted to make toffee, and it was sometime in November, you know, getting into the holidays like this. And she's like, okay, we'll make toffee. And so they were over there making toffee, and I was at the table after we cleaned it off, playing a board game with a couple of the other kids. And they turned on Christmas music, and they're dancing around. And then Grant comes pouncing into the kitchen, so proud of himself, because he'd gotten on YouTube and figured out how to replace a part on his truck. <laughs> And he got that truck when he and Melissa got engaged. Y'all, he's 39 years old. So I don't even know how old that truck is because it was not, it was used when he got it. But he, he has determined he's going to keep that thing running. And he was so proud of himself for getting that part replaced and doing it all by himself. And so they're prancing around the kitchen. They're eating toffee. And it just hit me all of a sudden. Just one of those weepy moments when it's almost like you're pulled out of a scene and you're looking at it. And I thought about the children that we serve in the inner city. How many of them have never had one night like that? And that's their normal. That's their normal. They have a little notebook that they've made up called the Gaines Family Hymnal, and it's all their favorite hymns. And the kids get to pick hymn when they do their devotional time at night. And they pray together, and they have a solid biblical foundation. And so the next day, I'm driving three of them to the competition. And, you know, grandmothers do have to lecture every once in a while. <laughs> so I had to tell them that... You know, last night, and I just kind of rehearsed what they had experienced that night in their home. I said, do you understand that the children I minister to in the inner city, many of them have never had one happy night like that with their family? One meal prepared for them where the whole family sits around the table and talks and shares without any conflict, without any anger? They've never experienced it. I said, Gus, do you realize what you have? I just want you to understand how blessed you are to have your parents, and I want you to have hearts full of gratitude because there are so many children who don't have what you have. And I reminded them of that recently when we were together again. We had them over fall break, and I said, do you remember when I told you? We can create that. We are to be outposts of heaven. Our churches should be outposts of heaven. And because I'm not living in the flesh... I'm not comparing myself to you. I'm not competing with you. I can't minister to and love somebody I'm comparing and competing with. That is a huge red flag of the flesh. If I am feeling insecure, if I can't rejoice with you, if I can't weep with you, there's something wrong in my heart. So I don't get down about it. I get along with the Lord. <laughs> Say, okay, Lord, that's ugly, and I don't like it. And I want you to show me what the root is. And God, I want you to pull it up by the root. If it's something from my past, if it's a lie that I'm believing, Lord, show me what it is. Because we're going to see all these guys have crisis moments in their lives. Abraham's was when he had to offer Isaac. I know that was Isaac's as well. He had to be offered. 
But Jacob is going to wrestle with a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ at the Jabbok River. And he's going to leave with a limp, but he's going to be changed. I want to willingly surrender. <laughs> I don't want to have to wrestle with the Lord. I want to say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender. I am holy and completely and utterly abandoned to you. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, use me. Flow through me. Let me be a vessel of honor in your hand. And may we all, because he is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. And Lord, we see how it is so easy to slip back into the flesh. It is so easy to desire comfort over character. God, would you forgive us when we choose comfort over getting to know you, when we stay in bed instead of meeting you in our appointment that we made with you? Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Would you change us by it? Would you enable us, Lord, to shut everything else out and to sit in silence before you and listen and let you speak to us? And Father, may we respond in absolute surrender as we offer ourselves to you as that living sacrifice. And God, we, are, we want to see you move. We want to see 20,000 people saved in Memphis over a three-month period. God, we want to see people healed. God, we want to see people come into your kingdom. And we want to see the light of the gospel dispel the darkness in our city where there's so much poverty and violence and crime and hatred. God, we bring the blood of Jesus and the name of Jesus against it. And we're asking you to tear those strongholds down in Jesus' name, and Lord, to erect a banner, a righteous banner. Lord, you are Jehovah Nisi. Erect your banner over this city and claim this city for Jesus Christ. And may we go out, Father, in the love of Christ and love our city to Jesus. Let us be those who go out to bless and to be a blessing. And Father, we give you praise and glory and honor, and we worship you. We worship you in Jesus' name.